Side Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. have run out, all but a tangled mess of string on the floor. I'm not going to try and untangle it, you do it. As we put a full stop to the proceedings of this arc, let us look ahead to the storm of shadows on the horizon, and what it could bring. The office of the Governor General has put out a bounty. That's it listeners, we have another rogue for you to both keep an eye out for and stay away from. A bounty of five guild scrip is being offered for the suspected arcanist Rose Crowshaw. Crowshaw is a five foot eight woman wearing a pair of goggles, well-worn boots and a corset. Prior to becoming a wanted felon, Crowshaw's last job was a mechanic working around the breach. For this reason alone, she should be considered to be very dangerous. We have evidence that she spoke to known Arcanist rebels at her posting. She was last sighted heading in the direction of the Hourglass Hotel and Saloon. Smaller rewards will also be given out for information on her whereabouts and any potential contacts. Here is our first tale for today, Martial Law. Martial Law January 15th, 115pm Orville Weaver knelt in the dry riverbed. Although mid-January, unseasonable warmth had pushed in from the south, dissipating the thin layer of frost that had settled in the night. Numerous buckles down the front of his grey duster held it wrapped tightly around him and he began unfastening one after another to afford more freedom of movement as he examined the ashen dirt. His gloved hand broke through the top layer of soil easily, and the clod broke into a loose pile of sand. Upon his hat, a cross between a gentleman's top hat and the more wide-brimmed hats of the cattlemen working the range, rested a set of mechanical goggles, held around the crown by an elastic band. He pulled them over his face, securing them across his brow with the leather side flaps so that no light could interfere with his examination. Glancing quickly to the sky, he worried that he might actually need some additional light due to the thick and ominously dark clouds that had loomed for the past months. They looked ready to unleash a torrent at any moment. Of course, that had been the prevailing thought for weeks, yet the clouds had only released a minute-long drizzle several days earlier. What do you reckon dried it up? Luis Hernandez asked as he approached the kneeling investigator. Orville said nothing. He dialed the clockwork mechanism on the goggles, and the gears protruding from the lenses adjusted to bring the grains of sand into clearer focus. Another button dropped a dark blue filter in front of the convex lenses, so that he could see a different spectrum of light upon the grains. Constance Weaver, 
The commanding guardsman on sight barked. Step back, Hernandez. A gust of wind picked up, and she held the dark grey hat upon her head lest it blow away, like the sand in Investigator Weaver's open hand. He studied the grains as they blew. The opaque cerulean lenses close to the material as it quickly flew in the breeze. When his gloved palm was free of the sand, he pulled the goggles away from his face and rested them upon the base of his hat once more. He withdrew a narrow wafer of lead from a pocket on his vest and wrote the findings within his log. Constance stepped up from behind. There were more escorts to the investigator, but, like Hernandez, she was anxious to have anything to explain the sudden and severe drought. Same as Site 3? she asked. Orville turned toward her and could not hide his frustration. It was startling to see his emotions given the typically stoic demeanour of all the investigators. Afraid so, he said. Vulcanism so close to the surface dried it right up. Even if water still stood, there's too much sulphur, hydrogen chloride and other elements that would make it undrinkable. She didn't understand much of the mumbo-jumbo, but undrinkable was enough. He stood and brushed the grey dust from his knees. As he walked towards the horses, his feet kicked up small clouds. Undrinkable. Like the wells that still produced within Malifaux. Too many toxins from the volcanic upheaval that had struck some weeks past. They had thankfully subsided, but the damage done was far more outreaching than the accompanying quakes that had brought down some buildings or put cracks in the foundations of many more. The investigator mounted, and the guardsmen quickly followed. We go on side five, Constance inquired. Orville nodded. We'll go to the mall. No need to check him with the spectrometer, though. They'll all be the same. Let's ride hard and be quick about it. We're looking for water that still runs now. His spurs dug into the flanks of his mount, and they rode a brisk gallop toward the northern mountains, hoping to find decent water coming down. Miners were up there again, cutting blocks of snow and ice and shipping them down to Malifaux. But the caravans could not keep up with the demand of Malifaux's population. Orville Weaver needed to get back to the Enclave by sunset. Lucius Matteson demanded a report. Rose Croshaw turned quickly at the alley between the narrow bank and the Hourglass Hotel and Saloon. She stepped lively through the dirt that stuck to her boots from the bog water that permeated the soil in the boom town of Hope, near the larger swamp region. She didn't take notice. Her boots were well worn, and the layers of dirt and oil were as much a part of their makeup as the original leather beneath. They were not the fashionable women's boots of the day, either. They were men's boots, cut for an adolescent boy, most likely, as were her breeches. She hadn't considered wearing a dress in a long time, certainly before she became a steamfitter back home, and she brought none of her more feminine items through the breach some years past. She did still wear the tight corset that had become so fashionable in the day, but it was more because the tight garment offered no loose fabric to get caught in the gears and cogs of the devices she repaired. Someone was following her, she was certain. She had felt someone watch her every move ever since that strange confrontation with Kairis back in November. Even after transferring to Hope, a very remote boomtown far on the outskirts of the Malifaux territories, she hadn't shaken the eyes that always seemed to be upon her every move. 
A shadow passed overhead, and she ducked against the side of the hourglass and looked quickly up but saw nothing. Just paranoia, she whispered to herself. Shake it off. But she couldn't. Coming to the end of the narrow alley, she hid in the shadows behind a large barrel, looking back and forth for whoever might be following. She was off the central road, more out of sight, but that might not be a good thing, she realized. Whoever was after her might be more free to act against her without the fear of witnesses. But that wasn't true either. She had been alone frequently since abandoning her post at the breach and transferring first to promise and now hope. She had been alone in her small shack just outside the town. She had been alone in the mine, repairing steam mining constructs and elevator mechanisms. Looking back down the alley, there was no movement, no sounds. Nothing in the back of the buildings either, save the outhouses. Paranoia. Nothing was after her. She wondered if it was some odd side effect of her ability that she felt constantly watched or pursued. Perhaps Karis had not done anything out of the ordinary when they met at the breach either, but the manifestation of fear was a product of her own out-of-control imagination. Rose dismissed the feeling of dread as she stepped out of the shadows. Along the backs of the building, she'd at least feel more certain that no one else was nearby. The sound of a scratch upon the roof above her made her freeze, and she looked up in a panic. Only a dark cat. It ran along the edge of the roof line as she chastised herself for irrational fear and continued on. But the cat leapt from the roof before her. As it descended, it changed in midair, shifting in size and shape in the span of a second or two. It was no longer a black cat, but as it landed it had become a woman just as her foot struck the ground. She stood before a very stunned and speechless Rose Croshaw. The woman's thick blonde hair flowed over her tanned shoulders like a mane. Rose turned to run. She spun, but behind her stood a powerfully built man. His dark skin, tightly knotted dreadlocks and thickly muscled torso, exposed to the winter elements, made him seem primal. How he snuck up behind her without a sound, and from out in the open she couldn't understand. Anxiety and the sense of doom turned to outright panic, and she was about to scream when the dark man touched her forehead with the tip of his curved staff. As it touched her skin, she heard a low hum within her mind, images of running in a pack, of being free of a society that made such demands upon her for behaviour and thought. She was bombarded by images of independence. Calm, the man said, his voice resonant and commanding. She obeyed. Her hammering heart slowed almost instantly, and the fear dissipated as quickly. She would follow any command he gave her. In his presence she felt safe and confident. I am Marcus, he said. You will be safe with me. She already knew that. Looking up into the depth of his eyes, she knew she would have nothing more to fear. You were following me, she asked. We were not the only ones, but those agents will no longer be a concern to you. 
or anyone else for that matter. She knew it was true. With him leading her, she was secure that nothing would be a concern for her. With him she felt free of society, and had a strange new sensation to abandon everything she knew of her role as a mechanic. She never fit in anyway, she thought, never wanted to belong. She had always sought to be free. She wanted to run. She wanted to run with Marcus and the girl that had been a cat. She wanted to hunt. A strange noise escaped from deep within her throat. Was she purring? Marcus smiled down upon her. The strength you feel comes from the primal power unlocked from within. It will dissipate shortly. He touched her again with the tip of his shillelagh. Even more commandingly, he said, you will remember the strength you feel. She would never forget. She didn't need him to command it. Where are we going? she asked. It didn't really matter. She'd follow him anywhere. Into hell, most likely, he said. He smiled. The danger he anticipated intoxicated him, and she felt it too. Why have you chosen me? You have a primal skill I need, one that I want and have sought my whole life. I will study you. In the hunt. The Governor-General stood against the railing along the balcony adjoining his private study. A crew was busy within, repairing the damage caused by the recent quake, the epicentre of which seemed directly below the mansion. Repairing it again. Of course, the crew was different than the last repair crew that had worked on his study. Strange happenings seemed to befall any crew that worked within the mansion. The governor himself assured this crew that he would assign his personal guard to them once their work was complete, to escort them to their next assignment. When asked about their next assignment, however, he merely responded that the details were still being worked out. Various guild investigators stood behind him, ready to report their findings as he commanded. His secretary, Lucius, remained in the shadow to his right. Orville Weaver began, As we suspected, sir, the volcanic activity did more than shake and batter the city. The release of different chemicals and compounds has poisoned what water might be found in the numerous worlds, and a saturation of heat in the soil seems to have quickly dried up the otherwise plentiful running water sources coming into the city from out of the mountains. The volcanic drought extends to the mountains, the governor inquired. Nearly. But the recent sub-zero temperatures have the water there frozen too deeply to melt even at the base of the mountains. He thought on it for a moment, staring south upon his city. Mr. Clem, he commanded, what are your findings on the livestock? Investigator Clem was considerably meeker than Weaver, and he shook far too visibly in the presence of both Lucius Matteson and the Governor-General. Even the other investigators made him uncomfortable. He regretted accepting the position as a field agent, not for the first time. He also wondered how he'd been assigned the task of investigating the strange occurrences that had befallen the numerous ranches outlying the city. He mustered what courage he could. Speaking quickly to get it over with as soon as possible, he said in a squeaking voice, 
As Mr. Madison predicted, some ailment has befallen the non-indigenous animal stock brought here from Earthside. They've gone feral. Animals long domesticated and long unthreatening have developed a strange thirst for blood. He thought he was finished. He thought that would be enough. The Governor General said, Go on. Roger Clem swallowed hard, and the sound carried to them all. They attack anything in sight. They kick, scratch, bite, anything moving. They refuse to eat anything save living flesh. Has it spread to the other ranches? Not yet. I predict it will have infected them all within weeks. A month at the most. Cause? Unknown, sir. Malifaux, I guess. The joke fell flat. He regretted the attempt. Investigator Amelia Estremera spoke up, saving the uncomfortable Clem from any more scrutiny. This does not bode well for the social climate in Malifaux, she said. The governor actually turned to face her, irritated that she spoke out of turn without waiting for him to address her. Still, he knew her intent, and had all he needed from Roger Clem, as the man was clearly without any new information of any worth. In fact, it only offered what was already known and told to him before setting out on his investigation. That's not your job to gauge the demeanor of the city's inhabitants, Miss Estramira, he said archly. It's mine. Sorry, sir, she said, suddenly timid. Make your report, he commanded. The plague continues to spread. It's moved beyond the quarantine zone, beyond the slum district as well. Although it's not as potent as the initial outbreak in early fall, there are no known survivors that have contracted the illness. He turned to the final investigator. Gerald Stevens said, Several groups have formed various coalitions around the city and have openly engaged in rebellious activities. Known affiliations? None, sir. None that have been discovered, and I interrogated several rigorously. I believe they are independently organized groups, raising an insurgence to protest the decline of safety and living conditions. There will be connections to the Arcanists, possibly resurrectionists as well. Continue probing. Of course, sir, Stephen said, though he did not believe he would find any such connections. Part of the rhetoric of several of these rebellious groups is to immediately abandon their homestead here in Malifaux. Hundreds have already done so. Given the casualties of the plague, the death toll of their own violent protests, and the fear of the rising drought and famine, we predict a sharp decline in the population. Save the initial criminals assigned work duty here as well as others refused travel visas, the growth of the rebellious parties seems to have infiltrated most walks of life. If conditions worsen as predicted, the governor had heard enough and cut him off. Madison, he barked irritably, close the breach to travel. Effective immediately. Limit the run to Soulstone shipment and essential goods import. Immigration as well, Lucius asked. No need to add to the discontent. No travel. No immigration. Double the guardsman's watch duty. It's time to declare martial law. No one moves within a city save essential duties your office will approve. It will require some time to implement such drastic changes. You have no time, Mr. Madison. You'll enact my edict immediately. Spare no time, no manpower. 
see that it's handled. Lucius nodded. He would get it done. He never failed. You're all dismissed, he said, and turned back to the city in the valley below him. They each filed out, with Lucius at the end. When they had gone, he smiled, and his grip upon the railing tightened. Even better than planned, he whispered. Even better than planned. One construction worker just beyond the open door thought he heard the governor chuckling. sponsors. Your coin purse will not be able to repel value of this magnitude. The only traps at James Liver Chomping Johnson's hunting supply hut is our wide range of poaching aids and tools. In addition to the top of the line and second-hand rifles and boomsticks, we carry tents, rations and pretty much everything apart from the game itself. At close range, you won't be able to last long against our prices and knowledgeable staff. This month, we have a brand new range of traps in to suit everyone's needs, right down to the novice hunter. Simple trap wire, we got that, just mind your fingers on it. Heavy bear traps or a DIY wood trap for the more hands-on huntsmen. Make us a good offer, and we may even let you in on a few of the moving ones we found lying around. James Oliver Chomping and Johnson's Hunting Supply Hut. We're clamping down on costs. Rounding off the episode and the story with the revelation of the beast within. Revelation of the beast within. January 19th, 115PF Dr. Carl Morrow leaned close to the face of his patient. Secured to the bed with leather straps a quarter-inch thick, and metal buckles reinforced beyond what might have been necessary for even the most robust and difficult of his patients. For Perdita... They were significantly thicker and stronger than would ever have been required. Especially now, given her comatose state these past months. Unmoving save the subtle trembling of her lower lip as she gibber incoherently in the vast depths of her endless dreams. His eyes, just inches from her flesh, watched a ray of sunlight fall upon the side of her face and gently warm her dark skin. Oh, he whispered in awe as the line of her forehead and nose took on the glow spilling through the narrow window several feet beyond the bed. He ran his index finger down her face. 
between her eyes and along the bridge of her nose, tracing the sunlight that irradiated her flesh. Perdido Ortega, he said in a whisper. He had a tendency to over-enunciate his words, and small droplets of spittle struck her earlobe and cheek as he punctuated the sounds. So much rest time, he said, still gently stroking her facial features with the tip of his finger. It neared the tip of her nose. Beauty sleep, rest for the wicked, he chuckled. His finger slid down the base of her nose and across the depression above her upper lip. You've had both, dearest. More beautiful than any might desire. More wicked, too. His fingers traced the contour of her lips. We're all wicked, aren't we? His fingers tapped their way back up her face, striking with each word as he quietly said, The monster's hidden here. And with the final word, he tapped her forehead. All those little monsters trapped in here. Busy, busy, busy. All the monsters in here. Time meant nothing to Perdita. To Dr. Morrow, she had been there for over five months. To her, she had just arrived. The voice of a boy, a student lost at Kythera, struggled to speak to her again. But she couldn't hear him well. She was floating in a pool of dark water. Just her nose and lips rose above the surface. Her eyes couldn't see through the dark substance, turning the light from above to a strange indigo. The truth, she heard the boy say. Don't say it, another voice even more faint said in the indistinct darkness above her. An older voice, conveying wisdom in its words, said, She can handle it. It's why she's here. She's here because she's dead. They're all dead. No, not yet. Not dead. There's no escaping Malifaux, another said, as Perdita struggled to lift herself from the pool, to hear more clearly. What's the truth? she asked. Don't tell her, the distant voice urged. She's not ready, doesn't know where she is. None of them do. Where am I? Dead. No, she's not. She's here, isn't she? Not exactly. Then where is she? I'm telling you, she's dead. What's the truth? She managed to scream in the darkness of her mind. 
She couldn't speak to them the way she wanted to. Didn't understand where she was or how she'd come to be there. The voices tried to show her what she needed to know, but they didn't know how to speak to her either. They spoke over each other and contradicted one another. The voice of that young man, a student that went to Kythera on an expedition and never returned, his voice was stronger than the others. It rose above theirs to speak to her more conversationally about what they had discovered at Kythera. He explained where she was. He explained what she was. The others were right. She wasn't ready for the truth. It's not that she didn't like it. She couldn't accept it. His words were a revelation to her explaining what he had seen at Kythera. What they had all seen. It's the truth that had driven them mad. It's the madness that had led to them tearing into one another, ripping one another's flesh right off their bodies. The little monsters are dancing in here, Dr. Morrow whispered. Busy, busy, busy. He inhaled sharply, smelling her hair. It hadn't been washed in weeks. He didn't mind. She was intoxicating. We all have those little monsters we try to hide, don't we, Miss Ortega? Try to keep them out of the public eye. To keep them under wraps, as it were. Sometimes our monsters are harder to control than others. Lucius Madison stepped out of the shadow behind the doctor. He was silent in his movements. And when he said, Some monsters are more palpable than others. The doctor screeched and knocked his teeth against Perdita's cheek when he jumped. He stood and spun in a movement, and the governor's secretary was uncomfortably close. He fidgeted with his lab coat pulling it taut in the front, and buttoning it severely and quickly. Some are more real than you realize, he added quietly. Dr. Morrow smiled faintly and laughed uncomfortably. Sternly, Lucia said, Leave us. The doctor didn't argue, excusing himself without a word. Madison loomed above the comatose body of Perdita, staring intently. We have need of you, he said to her, his voice dry and wispy. He pressed his open fingers down upon her face, spanning the breadth of her skull. He pressed violently, squeezing painfully. A soul stone was crushed in his other hand, the milky-white vapors entwining his arm before he could redirect its powerful influence. Awaken, he commanded, and his voice boomed. Her eyes snapped open. The orbs were ashen gray, dull, reflecting no light. 
though thin bands of silver and purple swirled in their depths, as if they were dark pools without end. Far from the city where the red cage had fallen those many months ago, tearing a rift in the fabric separating this world from the ether, releasing the purple wave that had become known as the event, and left her asleep to the world. A cry came up from the unexplored depths of the hold that stretched for miles beyond the point of impact. It was angry and shrill and foreign to all people that had ever walked upon Malifaux's soil. The beast flew out of the pit on wings that stretched wide on thin membranes, a flesh stretched beyond long bony fingers that protruded beyond the reptilian in barbed hooks. Its body stretched longer than a full-grown stallion, but it was more like a great panther. It screeched again. Though too far away for her to hear, Perdita jerked upright, pulling at the straps holding her down. It's coming for me, she said. Bands of purple and silver swam in the depths of her grey eyes. The creature shrieked again. Purple and silver bands crisscrossed through its ashen eyes. It knew where she was. It could find her anywhere. With a snap of its wings it caught a draught, ascending on a course that led straight for Perdita. our story arc all complete. Thank you for keeping your arms and legs firmly inside the carriage for the duration of the storytelling. Please now leave by your nearest available exit as directed by our friendly staff. In the news this week, a winged, neverborn creature has been sighted circling above Malifaux. This may not seem like anything out of the norm, but it is a type of creature that we have not seen before. It does share a few characteristics with the native Nephilim, purple or blue-toned skin, horns, wings, etc. But it differs in other crucial areas. It attacks alone, zooming down from out of the sky and taking off again, just as quickly. Onlookers have said it reminds them of a panther or some kind of really angry, ugly horse. Not content with picking off a few caravans coming into the city, a beast last week attacked a market on Brick Lane. The Brick Lane stalls are famed for selling items brought back from old Neverborn tombs. This creature thrashed about, knocking over stalls before being chased off by guardsmen. Keep your ears peeled for its cry, everybody. Caution is being advised. Don't forget to join us next time, listeners, when we'll be venturing onto a brand new story. And remember, bad things happen.